Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of A Little Bit Famous with Ted Murata. Um, now, some of you close observers may be thinking to yourselves, wasn't there an episode 10 up for a few days and then suddenly and mysteriously vanished? Well, that's true. Um, I had a guest on, and um, upon reflection, my guest thought that maybe some things were revealed that were a little too personal and um, just asked if I would be willing to take it down. And out of respect for my guest, I agreed. So... Now we're here with another episode 10, episode 10 2.0 or something like that with my amazing guest, Steve Gorman, the drummer from the Black Crows. I'm incredibly excited. I was super nervous when we started this <laughs> this conversation and, and we'll get to it in just one second. But I did quickly want to say after listening back to this episode, I realized that Steve and I use the phrase click track a lot. And I'm thinking that maybe for people out there who are either aren't drummers or musicians who record in studio or practice with a metronome, click track is just another way of saying a metronome, which is a timekeeper. You set the metronome to a certain tempo. It stays consistent at that tempo, and it's used often in recording studios and other projects just to make sure the band is sort of dead on with their time. So there you go, a quick Reader's Digest version of what a click track is for the unaffiliated. So we're going to start right in here with this episode with Steve. Follow me on Instagram if you want. Support the show if you want. Click the link at the bottom of the description, and I really hope you like this episode. It was so much fun to make. I didn't plan on having two drummers uh, back to back on the show. I had Aaron Comes for episode nine, and now here we are with this new fangled version of episode 10 with my guest, Steve Gorman. It just worked out that way. So anyway, here we go. Episode 10 with my guest, Steve Gorman. My guest today is Steve Gorman. He played drums for the Black Crows from its earliest days until the band's eventual breakup in 2015. He wrote a book called Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows, released in 2019. And he also has a nationally syndicated radio show called Steve Gorman Rocks on the Westwood One Network. Steve, welcome to the show. I'm really excited and also extremely nervous to have you on today. I am. Uh, I'm happy to be here, man. I'll go ahead and, and and make it worse for you. I saw a video you posted of you playing Remedy recently. Oh no! And I and I and I say this sincerely. It was fantastic. Oh man, that's a, that's a song that everybody always rushes and gets wrong, especially when they're trying to play it to the album tempo. And I was, I didn't even realize it was you. I just went, hey, look at that dude playing Remedy. That's really good. And then I was like, oh wait, I just heard from that dude. So well done, <laughs> sir. Thank you so much. I love that song. It's to me, it's just rock and roll. I mean, you know, just personified. And um, the thing that I love about that song is that it has this really energetic introduction. And then and then you just sort of just sit back, you know, you just mm -hmm. sort of sit back into that pocket. And, and it's it's awesome. So much fun to play. Thank you. That's that's high praise. I, I'm, I'm, I appreciate that. No, um, very job well done on your part. Thank you. All right. So anyone who wants to see me play it, go follow me at Ted Murata on Instagram. Anyway, it's really great to meet you. I have I, I'm, I'm so curious and I have so many questions for you. Um, and I, I want to say just sort of at the beginning that when when Hard to Handle came out, I was in I was in high school and I was at a friend's birthday and I had never heard of you guys 
mm-hmm. that point. And he put it on and it was just playing while we were, you know, uh, having our light beers at this high school party. And man, I was immediately like, holy cow, this is not what you hear on the radio right now. That that's mm-hmm. for sure. And also the drums were great. And I was just immediately intrigued by you guys and, and, and became a fan and uh, have loved your records ever since. Now, I, I have heard um, that you came to playing drums really late. I, I've read a couple articles that that, you know, you came to actually playing drums late, but you loved playing drums from the very beginning. Um, I'm, I, I, it's fascinating to me because I started playing drums when I was like nine years old, started taking mm-hmm. lessons and stuff like that. And, and, and to think that you started playing drums really not that long before you were doing, you know, essentially a Black Crows demo um, was it for EMI at the time? The first Black Crows demo was for A&M Records that I A&M, played on in okay. 1987. Yeah. I, I, is this something you can articulate that, that how was it that you went from being conceptually a drummer and being someone that really believed you were going to be a drummer in a band someday to sitting down well, be, I, behind a kit and, and playing? I mean, there's a, there's a million ways to answer that question. And, and I've been asked that a lot, obviously, since the book came out. And what I've kind of come around to is a few things. I mean, a few things I already knew, um, which I'll linear logical things and then a more esoteric thing, uh, which I can get to. But I mean, basically just I was hit with the drum thing at the age of five or, or maybe right when I turned six. So significantly, it's no other way to describe it. Um, I, I was listening to my to, to records in my house. I'm the youngest of eight kids. There's a lot of music being played, a lot of arguing over who gets control of the turntable, you know, at all times. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a Bee Gees album that I'd won as a door prize at an older brother's basketball game, the album Two Years On. And I, because it was my album, that's the only thing I ever wanted to listen to. And so an older brother, my brother Tom, got sick of hearing it, literally came into the the room, the the we had a we called it the pool room. There was a pool table and a stereo in the room. So it was the pool room. He walked in and he handed me help rubber soul and meet the Beatles. And he said, just play these like anything to get that Bee Gees record off. Mm-hmm. And I put on help first. And when I heard the song ticket to ride, I started air drumming. I mean, it's just as simple as that. I just, that pattern and that groove and everything about that song resonated really hard with me and specifically Ringo and what he was playing. And I just, I mean, I still remember very, very clearly like that being like this, this light just appeared in the room that said, this is what you're going to go do. And, and, you know, the reality of my situation was I was the eighth kid in a family that didn't have a spare nickel. The idea of getting a drum kit for Christmas was never even a concept I thought was possible. Um, At that same exact time, the duality of my brain said, that's okay. Cause it's going to happen one day. Cause this is what you're supposed to do. Like I was, I was not in a rush to get a drum kit because I figured it's going to happen when it happens, but there was never a time in my life from the age of five forward where I didn't think in the back of my head or sometimes in the front of my head, I'm a drummer. I mean, I was a drummer in every way, except that I wasn't drumming. Mm-hmm. That's just how I saw myself. Um, I listened to drums. I focused on drums. I obsessed over what was, you know, if I got a new record, I would listen to the songs for, I would just hear if I liked the song, you know, what's the melody? Does it move me in some way? And the minute I was familiar with the music, then it was just all about what's the drummer doing. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I, I spent a lot of years, I mean, from the age of five until I was really in college before I ever sat at a drum kit and played. But I spent those years at a time when my brain and my perception of the world is developing like anybody's. You know, I was filling it with music and obsessing over drums. And because I wasn't playing drums, I didn't develop any bad habits. You know, it was almost like the perfect way. Like, you know, I was this, I clearly had a knack for it. I clearly, there was obviously a talent in me that I could be a real drummer. Um, And I wasn't in my basement trying to be Keith Moon or Neil Peart. So I didn't learn a lot of bad habits because you can't be those people because those people are those people. Um, You know, by the time I bought my own drum kit and I talked myself into being in a band, I, you know, I hadn't spent years alone learning great fills. You know what I mean? I just, Mm -hmm. I had developed this understanding, which I didn't even recognize or thinking about in a linear way at the time, but I understood what the drums are supposed to do in a rock and roll band. You're supposed to push it. You're supposed to pull it. You're supposed to swing. Mm -hmm. If the song needs help, then come up with some interesting patterns and fills. If it's a great song, just get the hell out of the way. I mean, all these real basic things to me that made sense. And I was able to just do those things right off the bat when I started playing. Um, I, I was, because I was 21 when I started going, because I was 21 when I was in a band for the first time, and because I was 21 when I was trying to figure out how to do this, I didn't feel like I had time to make any mistakes. Like I was kind of catching up, you know, I was running from the back of the pack from the mm-hmm. jump. And so I looked at it like, you know, I, I just have to be efficient and lean and mean and just make this happen right off the jump. I didn't, I felt like there was a clicking uh, a, a ticking clock from the minute I moved to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, I was 21 years old and I moved there to start a band with three guys that were all 18 years old. And so I was already old, you know, at 21, yeah. I thought, Oh my God, I'm way too old to be starting this. So I got to get my shit together. And then I left that band and joined a band with a guy that was uh, still, a, you know, just finished a senior year in high school. You know, like my first band, everybody had a year of college under their belt. And then I went from that band to Mr. Girl's Garden with a kid who had just graduated high school. So I was really, I was always feeling old, even though, like I said, I was just 21 turning 22. Um, but I, I also had this whole, I, it, it, I, I was able to look at local bands and I saw drummers right away. The thing I noticed immediately was every one of these guys can outplay me. And every one of these guys is scared when they get on stage. You know, I could just sense <laughs> they were nervous and they were yeah. overthinking. And I was... I'd played sports my whole life and I just had this immediate, I just looked at it like basketball, which is, you know, I, I might not be the best player on the court, but I'm, I'm going to, if I'm open, I'm shooting and I know how to play. I know where the ball's supposed to go. I knew all the, you know, I knew what was supposed to happen and I was never going to not go down swinging, you know? And I thought if I get on stage and I, and I don't have a good show, it's not going to be because I'm second guessing myself. It's going to be just for, it'll be, it'll be for anything other than a lack of confidence. You know what I mean? If that makes sense. It does. Um, The thing that a lot of people have asked is how did you know? It's like, well, I didn't know. I mean, a lot of it was in my head. I was just this big dreamer, but you know, dreams don't come true unless someone dreams them. Mm -hmm. You have to have an irrational confidence in yourself. You have to have an irrational ability to ignore a lot of red flags that are flying up all around you. You know, I've always said, if I knew what I was getting into, I would have stayed in college because nobody you know, you walk into the music business and it's just this, you know, it's just a shit, shit. It's a ditch yeah. of just awful everything. And if you knew what was ahead of you, but you know, I think most things in life, especially creative endeavors, if you know what to expect, what's the, where's the creativity come in? You know what I mean? Where's the, 
where's the thrill in in getting on a road where you have a map i mean yeah. there's that's that's not a thrill that's called a job you know yeah. like my friends that stayed in college and i had a few friends that told me i was crazy for dropping out of college you know they we were all 21 years old and i didn't know what a 40k was at 21 years old and they did and they understood that if you you know save a little by the time you're 50 and i'm like 50 what the, I, I don't even know what i'm having for lunch what are you talking yeah. about um it was all those things sort of combined, you know, like I, I did have an innate understanding of, 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 I think what a, for my mind, what a proper rock and roll drummer is supposed to do. I knew that I could do it if I just took the time to, and, and put in the hours and I wasn't afraid to fail, you know, I mean, I kind of the esoteric thing. And I've, I've thought about this a lot in the last few years, writing the book, because one thing a lot of people and especially musicians ask is what, weren't you afraid? And I, the answer is, well, what was the worst that was going to happen? Mm-hmm. I mean, 99% of everybody who tries to go make a living in music doesn't. Yeah. yeah. The odds are against me, but so what, what's what I go back and get a degree and go get a job. What's the horror in that? I mean, mm-hmm. it, 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 there's a lot of things that could go worse. You know what I mean? I, by the time I dropped out of college, I'd lost several people in my life. Very young, very important to me. Um, you know, you, I, I, two of my, my first two friends in Kentucky, they both, neither one of them made it out of high school. You know what I mean? And it's like, what am I afraid of? Who fucking cares? You know, it's, yeah. it's, you know, anything can happen at any moment. So, you know, all of those things, you could turn this into a much shorter answer, but all of that led to me being at a place at, at the age of 21, where I was like, I'm just going to buy a kit and do this and see what happens. Cause I think it's going to work. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know of any other I don't know of any other drummer who came to to, you know, being uh, becoming a rock star in a in a great band the way that you did. I just think it's incredible. But the, some of the things that you mentioned kind of just brought some 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 memories up for me. I mean, I did the same thing. I went to college and then I, I decided I was going to be in a band. I, I, I basically made the same, the same decision, but not when I was five years old. Um, and I did, I just said, I'm going to go, I'm going to join a band. And a couple days later, I got a call. I auditioned for a band. I dropped out of college and, uh, joined this band called ominous sea pods. And we were on the road for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but you mentioned losing friends and losing people that were close to you. I used to probably the person who, who, who kind of motivated, motivated me more than anyone else, uh, to, to really believe in myself as a drummer was this incredible guitar player. I went to school with named Matt and, um, you know, he had some issues and I saw them and I worried about them, but I wasn't sure what to do about them. But we used to jam all the time in his basement. And eventually I got in the band and we kind of lost touch. And then not long after that, he committed suicide. And I just remember thinking, oh, he, he had so much potential. He was such mm-hmm. a great player. And I know that you I know that this is these are experiences that you've lived with and through in your many years being in a band and being on the road and, 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 and you know, Lots and lots of talented people have addictions and have mental health mm-hmm. issues and all sorts sure. of other things, um, you know. So that's yeah, and that was something and, that was. And, and you know, there's also, I mean, and, and the flip side of that is, as I said, I, I had seven older siblings, and you know, it, it, in the fall of '86, my sister Susan got married. My whole family's in D.C. for her wedding, and I made this grand announcement: I am dropping out of school, and I'm going to move to Atlanta and start a band. And the first question I was asked was my oldest brother, Bob. He goes, okay, what instrument do you play? I mean, that's how out of left field this was. Right. Um, but 
everybody said, that's awesome. Like not one of my older siblings was like, you're out of your mind. They were all like, man, cool. You know, cause you know, I'm 21. My oldest brother at that time is, is at that, you know, he's 35 and there's a, there's a kid every two years for a 14 year gap, right. You know, window. Yeah. yeah. And they'd all been through life. They'd all had experiences and they're all looking at me and I, as much as I felt old with the guys in my band, I didn't feel, I still knew like, I'm still just the kid, you know, cause like you got older siblings. You're always going to look at life in a weird way through their lens. You're always going to be shorter. You're always going to be slower. You're always going to be younger, you know, all those kind of things. And so, you know, and throughout my entire experience, they always saw me as I'm, I'm their little brother. You know, I'm, I'm, I grew up last in line. That, yeah. that my life is spent the, 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 the youngest and the shortest. And, you know, I, I didn't sit in the front seat of a car until I was like 12. If there was other people in my family in the car, because the pecking yeah. order was by age, you know? And right. so uh, th- I think those things are all really great. Were great for me. I didn't feel like I, I didn't go join a band so I could find myself. I already knew who I was. I joined a band and I started a band and wanted to play in a band because that's all I ever wanted to do. But I didn't have a need to figure out who I was. And I never felt like I was destined for stardom and fame or any of that shit. That was, mm. that's kind of cool. Okay. If, mm. if someone knows who you are, but I, I, I literally went at it from a place. And, and by the way, some of my favorite artists, uh, of course, got into the things they do for the exact reason of, I got to go find myself. I need to be somebody so I can look myself in the mirror. It's not a judgment call. I'm just saying that's not where I was coming from. So I think a lot, you know, the fear of failure, um, I I think I'd always read enough and I'd always known that, you know, the people I was always inspired by that you fail a million times and then you, and then you, and then it works. So I I just, I didn't have a lot of those insecurities. I, I had different ones. Everybody's got them, but Mine were never around, you know, what if this doesn't work or what if it's not good? It was always just do the best you can and try to make it happen and see how far you can take it. I mean, I, you know, a small group of like-minded people can go pretty fucking far yeah. as long as they stay on the same page. Yeah. I mean, I think I, 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 I was cycling through identities as an 18-year-old kid, I think, as is common with, with, with you know, adolescents. It sounds like you had a level of know-how or not know-how. You had a level of wisdom about yourself. Um, that was sort of wise beyond your years, I would say, in some respects. But um, I never doubted what I was doing when I dropped out of college to join a band. I wasn't looking for stardom or fame either. I just wanted to do something that I really love to do. But I will say mm-hmm. that the times of doubt came when uh, you know I-, I was in a band that sometimes had unbelievable conflict and stress. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I know this is something with which you're extremely familiar. And those were the times when I thought, I don't know, I don't know about this anymore. It was never about the music. It was never about yeah. my passion for playing. It was, it was about, can I live in this combustible environment yeah. right. for much longer? Um, what, well, what, when- being in a band, especially if you're on the road, that's, that's every hour of every day. And, and if, you're, if you're fortunate to be in a touring band, you know, uh, the, a crowd is seeing you, your audience sees you for, if you're playing five nights a week, that's 10 or 11 hours a week that, that you're, that people are judging your entire life by. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got 150 other hours to make sense of or hundred and whatever that is. So, you know, it, it is a, if you're in a band that is put together by a management company, you know, if, if you're a bunch of professional musicians who meet and say, 
we know how the business works. Let's do this. That's one thing. But if you're in a band like I was with his, with some friends and, you know, part of the charm is not knowing what you're getting into. Part of the thing that's driving us is to go, you know, do things our way and let's blaze our own trail. Then you're going to have a lot of growing pains as you figure out. And then of course, if you're in a band that finds some early success, it's just throwing gas onto a grease fire, you know, whatever, whatever. I mean, for all of us for better and for worse, and the black crows are just one of a ton of bands. This has happened to, you know, you, you can't help, but get a sense of, Oh, I guess we're right. You know, you, you have success and then suddenly you're all geniuses mm-hmm. and you assume, well, we knew something and yeah. it's, it's hard it's hard after early success to see it as anything other than validation or affirmation that you're a step ahead of everybody else. And oftentimes that's nothing can be further from the truth. And even if you are a great band, you know, we weren't a great band. When we put out our first record. We became one over the next couple of years for sure. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that, but you know, along the way, you know, people used to say like, oh, you're the grounded one. You're the sensible one. And I'd say, well, then we got problems because I wasn't <laughs> feeling much of either, you know, in those early nineties years. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it's um, it, the, 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 what we, you know, we did a lot of things, right. We did a lot of things I can look back and, and say, we, we did them poorly, but, but we didn't lose focus on what was most important, which is we were just trying to be a great band uh, yeah. in those early years for sure. Yeah. Um, and you can avoid a lot of uh, pitfalls. You can also avoid a lot of really great up. You can miss a lot of great moments uh, because you just shut out everything. You know, you're just sort of, I don't want to turn into this thing I used to make fun of. So I'm just going to put my head in the sand and focus on the music exclusively. And you can, you know, you can, like I said, you can limit, you can avoid a lot of really bad decisions, but then you can also miss a lot of great opportunities. And we were all, you know, individually and collectively, both those things happened to the Black Crows. Mm-hmm. Real quick question: What what was your first kit? I, I just curious. I bought a Pearl Export kit uh, okay. in 1987 and a set of Zildjian scimitar cymbals. Oh, top of the line stuff. I got I, I got the <laughs> whole thing for six ninety nine ninety nine. Yeah, I uh, yeah. Similar for me, I had a Tama Rockstar, and well. it wasn't a coincidence because I told the guy at the store when I walked in, I had seven hundred dollars, and uh, and I walked he just out managed with, to, to. I literally that walked deal out for with you. a receipt and a penny. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Um, did you? Are, are you? I mean, I I think I I think you're playing a drum kit now that I hadn't seen before. Uh, is it sugar percussion? Is that mm-hmm. what you've been okay? Yep, I've got a few. I've got three of their kits, actually. Sugar Percussion, just relocated from Santa Cruz to Portland, Oregon. Um, Sugarpercussion.com is a great place to go to figure out what those drums are all about. Um, A guy named Jefferson Schallenberger runs that company. He's a good friend, and he makes beautiful drums. Yeah. Um, And so I got one in 2013. I got a snare drum in 2012, and then I loved it, and then he finished out a whole kit for me for the last tour I did with the black crows in 2013. And then uh, along the way, I've picked up two more from him. I have a, I have a, the first kit he did, was a cherry kit, like a 24 inch kick cherry. And then I got a 26 inch uh, kick drum of three piece, a four piece kit, a cedar, Alaskan yellow cedar. And then I have a 22 uh, mahogany, um, 22 inch kick with a mahogany four piece. And that's what I've been playing uh, late, most usual, most lately with Trigger Hippie, mm-hmm. and they're all very different. They're all fantastic. 
Well, this this is a great opportunity for me to ask you um, because I, there were a couple things that I really took from you as a drummer. Um, w- one was simply your playing. You know, um, there were some drummers that I listened to along the way that because I was that kid who was had you know headphones with like a duct tape wrapped around my head, mm-hmm. you know, p- listening to Rush and playing near Neil Peart um, songs. Initially, that was what I thought I was. You know, and 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 early sure. Meta- early Metallica. Uh, mm-hmm. But then I got into the, the Beatles and then I got into the Rolling Stones and, and that was what spoke to me. And that was the kind of drummer I wanted to be a real backbeat drummer restrained. Um, and you, you helped me with that a lot, just being a fan of, of your music and your playing, you know, that you could rock the shit out of a song and you didn't have to play crazy fills. To mm-hmm. me, you were really serving the music. And the other thing that I really got from you was the drum sounds. I, I've always loved the sound of your drums. Um, is that something that you personally spend a lot of time thinking about? Or do you just you know, come in, set up your kit and let the engineers take care of it? Or are you a real sort of this is the sound of this Tom is just right. This snare is just right. I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it at all. I, I definitely know what doesn't sound good to me. Um, I don't chase sounds. I know that it's going to sound, I mean, you know, I just did a session last week and I, I brought in this kit that I use on a million. I've used it for years. It's a, it's a, it's a 1958 Gretsch kit that I bought in 1991. It's a 20 inch kick, 12 and a 14 inch floor tom. It's tiny. Um, and I've used that. I, I, that's what the second black crows record was recorded on Southern harmony. Um, and I've I did it on some stuff here just last week. It it it's just the last trigger hippie record was that drum kit. Any any room, any mics, any setup ever, that kit just sounds great to my ears. Yeah. Um, I've got other drums that I love anywhere but in the studio, you know, but I'm not a, I'm not the kind of guy who can figure out why and how. I do trust engineers and producers, you know, their job is their job is to get sound. So, I mean, uh, you yeah. know, it's a yeah. big part of their job. Mm-hmm. I'm never, I, I rarely overrule somebody unless it really is just something I go, Oh, I, I just, that's not, that's not right. I, I kind of always approach drumming from like on in touring, especially I used to tell my drum tech, this is your kit. I'm just playing it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to be the guy tuning it all afternoon. You're going to be the guy taking care of it. You're going to be the guy that's noticing during the set. Hey, that thing is getting, this weird thing happens on that rack Tom every night around this time, you know, I'm too busy playing it to be worried about those things. I mean, I looked at it like, look, I'm driving, you're the pit crew. Like if this thing goes off the tracks, it's your problem, not mine. Yeah. Um, and in the studio, certainly the case, um, I give people the benefit of the doubt at first. Um, I have a, I have a black beauty snare that I play constantly for the same reason in the studio. It just always sounds good. I can, I can tune it up. I can tune it down. I can put a muffle on it. I can let it wide open. It just always works. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, you know what I mean? I, I don't, I don't know why that is. It just, yeah. I, it's just certain things over the years I've just found um, that I, like I said, I don't chase the sound in my head, but I, I know what I don't like. And then I know when I feel comfortable, but there's also a lot to be said. And I think this gets overlooked, but just the way people play, Yes. You know, if I play a kit and you play a kit, it doesn't sound like the same kit. Yep. Um, and and a lot of that is just I, I never consciously tried to figure out how to make a kit sound good by playing it. It's just I just play a certain way that lends itself to what it lends itself to. And I'm 
in touch with that. It, it, you can tell it's, this is a hard linear conversation for me to have. I don't have, I've never I, yeah, had to I'm worry. not that way either. I don't yeah. chase drum sounds. I mean, I, I, I know what drums sound good to me. I don't, I don't spend hours tuning them. Um, I find that getting drum sounds is relatively easy for me. I don't, I don't, yeah. uh, you know, obsess over it. So I get it. I'm the same way. I'm sort of like a gut guy when it comes to that. I, and, and, you know, to your point earlier about just serving the song, you know, if, if it, you can pick apart a lot of great albums by the tones, the guitar tones, the snare sound, everything. And you go take them individually and it doesn't work. And I, and I do think that especially in like rock and roll music, the, 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 the magic is just all in what everyone's doing together. It's the space in between every instrument. It's the, it's the collective air you're pushing and it's the, it's the vibe in the room that somehow jumps onto the tape that makes great takes. Um, you know, there's stone songs where if you just focus on one of those guitars and pull it out of context, you're like, that's a terrible tone. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it sounds really good next to everybody else. It, it yeah. mixes in, you know, and I, mm -hmm. I've just, no matter what I'm doing, I'm just, I just, you know, it's, it's to me, music is a stew, you know, it's chili. It's not about one ingredient. It's, the whole room's got to be right, or, or you're just kind of, you know, or you're just practicing otherwise. Yeah. Um, can we take a minute? Can we talk a little bit about about the the Black Rose records that you that you made and participated in? Sure. Yeah. I, have, I have a few questions. I I think it was um, I'm pretty sure it was George Draculius who did he produce the first two Hard to Handle yeah. and, and Southern Harmony, um, because he produced a, a, a couple of albums for the Jayhawks, and I always love those albums and. Um, beautiful records both of them. yeah yeah and i just i always i don't know i i i don't know specifically what he did for you guys or for the jayhawks but for some reason those were albums that i could feel his hand in i could mm -hmm. for some you know i sure. just had this sense that he was a part of helping to make this band or your band you know play at a different level you know, et cetera. What, what was your experience working with, with George Draculius? Um, I mean, he very much did what you just said. George is the first guy that showed up to see what was then called Mr. Crow's garden, uh, ever give us constructive criticism that we took, that we trusted, that we believed in. And, and the simplest way to say it is when we met George, he looked at us and basically said, okay, here's what you guys are good at. And here's what you guys don't do well. And you guys don't even know the difference. And, and, <laughs> anybody else that would have ever spoken to us like that, we would have just immediately tuned them out. And for some reason, I think we all just went, this guy's pretty cool, man. He knows what he's talking about. I mean, I don't think it could possibly be overstated how much George influenced us and inspired us and made us find ourselves. Our first album, Shake Your Moneymaker, um, you know, George didn't tell us how to play or what to play as much as he showed us what we should be playing. You know, like he, when someone says, these are your strengths. Let's just, let's just focus on this. You know, he said to me, he goes, you, you're pushing all these songs and you should pull because you're, you're natural. He goes, you have an ability to, 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 to groove a little bit. You know, you've got a really nice backbeat, but you don't take advantage of it. You're, you get on stage and you play too fast because you're all adrenalized and you don't, you, you know, you drink all this beer and then you get adrenaline and you're just thrashing around. He goes, man, find a groove, you know? Um, He's the first guy to ever talk to us like that. Like I said, that we took seriously, you know, he talked to rich. He said, you're the way you play it. Just there's open tunings that you should examine, you know, like your right hand, you play. He said, you, you, you got a Keith Richards thing going. And Richard's like, what are you talking about? But 
the second rich took something out of open uh, out of standard tuning and put it in open G just like that's how that guy plays. I mean, Rich is, you know, his right hand is a pretty special world all into its own. And I think from my recollection, George is the first guy that saw that in him. He certainly saw things in us that we didn't see ourselves, things that we were doing just by nature that we weren't recognizing. Actually, there were some hooks in our playing that he could put his hat on. Mm-hmm. And he was the first guy to show them to us. And then when we made Shake Your Moneymaker, you know, we'd never been in the studio only a handful of times. And he'd made records and we had. And so we soaked up that entire experience. You know, there was just so many things that, um, you know, I, for, for us anyway, in 1989, we needed someone to lead us. We had to have that. We were in no way, shape or form prepared to, you know, we made a record that was way better than we were. We had to catch up to Shake Your Moneymaker. When we hit the road, when it was released, you know, we, we had to go out and play every night for months to be a band worthy of that album. You know what I mean? Right, and then yeah. by the time we were making Southern Harmony, we were that band. Yeah. But we weren't, you know, for the first one, it took a little while. And that's, that's actually, all thanks to George. I mean, we, George helped us hit a ball way farther than we ever could have without him. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's something for, for anyone who's listening, who is an aspiring musician or a musician who hasn't yet got been involved in making a record with a good producer. Uh, they may not realize just how how much under the microscope a band is when they're making a record and how you can you can can have a producer who can get you to play above your head. Um, and then you get out on the road and you're like, oh, man, now we have to play these songs yeah. uh, at the level we did in the studio. Um, there's a there's a video, you know, that a friend of ours from Atlanta shot in 1989. It's one of the first gigs we played after we made Shake Your Moneymaker. It's at the 40 watt in Athens, Georgia. Mm-hmm. and that that band is not really all that great a band. You know what I mean? All the ingredients, yeah. it's all there. Yeah. You know, it's, it's us, it's, it's Rich and Chris and me and Johnny and Jeff. And there we are. We just made this record, but we're not up to snuff at all. If you see it, it's just like, huh, okay. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like I said, we, we just had never toured. We'd never been in a situation where we were able to go play night in and night out. As soon as the record came out, we did a six week tour with a band called junkyard. And, and I mean, just that six weeks alone, we were, night and day an entirely different band than the one that started that tour when it finished and yeah. we just kept at it we did uh 20 months of touring for that album so you know by the time we were making the second record it was that was all well behind us yeah um but you know you know producers are it's it's a it's it's the other band member i mean you know well if you see the mccartney 321 on hulu he's talking about what george martin did for people that aren't aware you know, the, the Beatles without George Martin don't happen. You, you've yeah. never heard of that group if it's not George Martin, because they can be writing catchy songs all day long. But there was just something about that guy who up to that point was really mostly known as a comedy album producer. George Martin and the Beatles, th- th- that's just, you know, it's sounds trite to say when you're talking about the biggest band that ever was. But I mean, that that that's where. You know, you know, Prince didn't need a producer, but pretty much everybody else did. You know what I mean? Michael Jordan yeah. always had a coach is something I've said a million times. It's like, yeah. it doesn't matter how great you are having somebody else that you trust yeah. that, that is every bit as talented. You know, George Martin knows music better than any of the Beatles ever did in his own way. And he was able to bring that. And obvious, ob- I mean, the results speak for themselves, you know, mm-hmm. Mick and Keith figured out how to produce themselves, but they were many albums in before they took over. You know, most most great bands, most great bands really do need an outsider to to be their partner, uh, to yep. be 
you know, a, a, a wall to bounce ideas off of and somebody who's somebody who's not going to go out and tour behind it. You know, someone who's like, no, 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 we're talking about just the record here. This is what yeah. this is all about. Yeah. And you can do better. You know, so a lot of people hate to be told you can do better. I love when someone says you can do better. It's inspiring. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, my very first episode of this podcast I did with a with a record producer named Glenn Rosenstein. And and he he talked a bit about, you know, that he's basically qualified to be a therapist. Um, you know, there's all there are all of these layers of 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 nuance um, that that producers must have these skills they must have um, everything, that, everything from therapy to, to working out a budget and everything in yep. between. You know? Yeah, exactly. And I was wondering, I mean, obviously the, the tension between uh, the tension within the Black Crows is well known. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't I innocently didn't know much about it, as I assume most fans didn't know much about it in the early days of those first couple records. Um, but was it already was it already happening when you were making um, Shake Your Money Maker? Sorry, I referred to it as hard to handle before, but but Shake Your Money Maker. Um, I, I probably, and, oh, and but did every, George play, did George yeah, have any was, help to everybody was primarily concerned with themselves. You know, we, we weren't at a, you know, I was, I was a nervous wreck the first few days. Cause I couldn't get, I'd never played to a click track before. And suddenly I'm in this studio and I'm feeling like, you know, it's, it's, I get one shot and if I blow mm-hmm. it, you know, I'm out of here. Um, yeah. you don't want to let anybody down, you know, everybody's insecurities, rise to the surface on that first record. I don't remember the band fighting with it, with each other. I think everybody was torturing themselves, just hoping mm. they could get it together. I mean, yeah. I, I know I certainly was. Yeah. Um, and you know, the truth is in the studio when we would be tracking, there, there would be tension, there would be fights and, and stupidity, but you know, when the band was playing almost all, there was very rarely a moment when somebody would say, that's the take. And somebody else would say, no, man, that's not. I mean, we mm-hmm. always knew we, mm-hmm. we, no matter how bizarre our interpersonal relationships could be at any given time, you know, at its best, the black crows always, we, oh, we always knew when things were badass, you know, be like, yeah. man, check that out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually, I also did a, I did a drum version of twice as hard mm-hmm. on, uh, of, uh, and, and, and that song is one of my favorite songs and your drums are just fucking rock solid on that song. And you're telling me that that was basically the first time you played to a click track. Yeah. Wow. It took, I mean, it took several days. It took several days to get a, a single take done, you know, George. Yeah. And that wasn't all on me. I mean, it was everybody because we yeah, weren't playing sure. well together, but I internalized every bit of that. I thought it was all just me. And I just thought, man, if they, if they brought in a real drummer, they'd already have the record recorded. You know, you just, I, I was torturing myself. And then as soon as we got a take of a song that was good, you know, once I, I mean, I wrote this, I, this story's in the book, but, you know, George was, he just kept telling me, you're falling off, you're falling off the click, you're falling off the click. This went on for a, a three days. Mm-hmm. And I literally thought falling off meant I was slowing down. So I kept right. speeding up and I was speeding to, up. I was pushing ahead and he would yeah. say, you fell off. And it literally took three full days. And finally I was so frustrated. I was freaking out about it. And he said, well, and I said, there's no way I'm falling off. I'm playing as fast as I can. He goes, mm. yeah, slow down. You're falling off. And I was like, yeah. how could falling off possibly mean speed up? And he goes, whatever, same thing. And I yeah. was like, you know, littlest thing like that. Um, it, but, you know, but like I said, once, so after that conversation, we got a take and all of a sudden I was like, oh, fuck, I got this. Okay. 
Yeah. And it fell into place pretty quickly. So when you guys went into, after you guys were on the road for, for sounds like almost for 20 months, I mean, that was a long tour, long stretch yeah, Southern of Southern Harmony was an entirely different story. I started tracking on Friday night. And I was done on Monday, the whole record. That's the, that's, that's how it feels to me. It just feels yeah. like a confident, um, incredible rock and roll band just making yeah, great like rock and my, roll. Music. My morning song is one take. We we played it once, mm-hmm. and and um and it was actually Brendan O'Brien who was engineering. He was a ridiculously successful producer in his own right. Yeah, but he was still uh, he was engineering that record as he had done the first one. So he came back, even though he had started producing on his own, he came back to do Southern Harmony. We finished uh, my morning song the first take and. I just remember he goes, Steve, are you okay? <laughs> like as a joke. And I was like, yeah, well, is something wrong? He goes, I'm nah, just, just making sure you're cool, man. I mean, like you got some aggression you want to work out or, you know, it's like laughing, but that one, uh, sometimes salvation, I, I, I want to say was one take because we had to fix. There's a, there's a weird turnaround before the last chorus with an extra bar or two. And we just fixed the bass to go. I mean, it was just a mistake. Everybody mm-hmm. got lost. Yeah. And so we just changed the bass notes to make that sound like it was right. And that was the song. Um, you know, there's a few of those. The only thing that so I started Friday night, Monday afternoon, we were like, OK, that's it. <laughs> Overdubs. And yeah. then a few days later, upon further review, we went back and we redid Remedy. Um, and that was the, that, you know, after three days of me not playing, we decided to try remedy again and we played it once and it was done that was the one that's on the record it was like all right let's try this again i don't even remember what wasn't clicking it just didn't feel right throughout like something it wasn't we had gone past it so we were now going well these other tracks are so great and remedy is a little shaky um i guess when we first recorded it we thought it was great and then we just realized it wasn't keeping up with what we were doing after yeah but then that was literally we just set it up and and played it once and then it was like oh shit there it is great that's that's awesome. Now I'm, yeah. I'm just I'm guessing based on my, you know my experience of playing along to Remedy that that was a tune you guys didn't play to a click track because it no has click that on that second album. That's there's what no, I was wondering. No, yeah. yeah, it has a re- I mean it has an amazing kind of loosey goosey feel to it, and the way that you are the way that you play it just feels so good and right. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel uh, stiffly metronomic. It just f- feels like a great rock and roll song. And I, I yeah. love that. Was that was was um, Shake Your Money Maker the first and last time you really used a click uh, with the Black Crows? We no, we did a click on our fifth album by your side. The way we okay. recorded that record had a click track as well. And if you put that on next to Southern Harmony, you'd right away go, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah I see. It's very, yeah. very, very much straighter. Yeah, um, I think that was it. Really, within the entire time with the Crows, it was that those two albums. The only other time we did an album um, in 2009 at Lee Von Helm's barn slash studio up in Woodstock, and there's a song, one song from that session. It's called "I Ain't Hiding." It's like a disco song, and we had a click on that. And the kind of song it is, if it pushes or pulls, it really falls apart. And so, yeah, I remember when we were putting it together. I said, like, man, we, I, there's got to be a click here because my natural, my, the way I normally play isn't going to, I'm not going to just hit this thing like a jackhammer all the way through otherwise. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, w- I definitely want to take a minute to talk about Amorica. Um, for me, as a, as a fan of your music and as a lover of music, watching you go, watching the band go from Shake Your Money Maker to Southern Harmony to Amorica 
mm-hmm. which by the way is one of my all, one of my all-time favorite albums and it felt to me almost like watching the beatles you know uh going from <laughs> some of their early earlier music to getting to something like revolver it seemed like you guys hit your stride you had a level of confidence in the rock and roll that you were making and you went into that album and it had a certain fuck you attitude about it. And it, I just I loved it. And I, you had a new producer for that record. You were working with Jack Joseph Puig. I'm curious mm-hmm. to know what your experience was working with him. What was the band dynamic when you were making that record? Because to me, it just felt like it was the greatest thing I'd ever heard. Well, Jack is unlike uh, the first two records, especially Southern Harmony. It was just set up and rip it you know it was like mm-hmm. like plug in get a tone and go like mm-hmm. uh, you know we just like i said we tracked it over a long weekend um amorica was very different in that jack is a huge on you know, he wants everything to sound exactly right like he is chasing specific sounds for the yeah. drums and stuff too like um uh hi-head blues like that kick drum sound is so yeah. humongous yes and it's a it's like a 28 inch marching drum you know this old ludwig mm. thing he'd had i uh, got from somewhere you know we spent literally hours hours just on that kick drum sound mm. now it's worth it i mean i hear it if i hear it now it's like god listen to that yeah but at the time you know that's not my preferred way to record you know i mean i right. s- sitting at a drum and you can't say, get your tech in here to do it. Cause especially on a record, everybody sounds different. So I'm yeah. sitting there for, I mean, not an exaggeration, like six hours of trying different mics, different configurations, blankets, no blankets, front head off on everything, trying to get this thing to sound just perfect. Um, when, when he finally decided, okay, we're ready. I was like, okay, well I'll see you tomorrow. I'm, de- yeah. I'm, I'm I don't want to play now. Like I was not in the headspace yeah. to suddenly go try to get a groove together. You know, it's like, Oh, dead. Um, <laughs> but again, like I said, you know, well, it's 26 years later, it still sounds pretty fucking great. Yeah, so it does. Um, but that was, you know, we had made a record before that we scrapped. That was a really unpleasant experience. Amorica was definitely more of a, okay, we got to get this one right. Everybody was pretty focused again after a, a pretty rough precursor. So, you know, I was enjoying it. I mean, and we were, the, the, the record was great. Like it, yeah. we would be listening back to tracks and it was definitely, we'd all look at each other like, man, yeah. that is bad, you know? Yeah. So that, that was going great. You know what I mean? Um, not every drum sound was as, as arduous as that one, you know, but mm-hmm. there were, there were a few days where I was really, there were times when I would say, Jack, honest to God, man, it's just the fucking drums. <laughs> There's six people in this band and that guy's going to be singing. No one cares what the floor Tom's going to sound like, least of all me. Let's yeah. get on with it. You know, like, cause yeah. I, I'm just a, I, you know, I just think that the, the, the essence of that band at its greatest was all about chemistry and vibe. And, and you don't get those things sweating, which microphone to be placed where for, for half the day. Yeah. Um, so, you know, somewhere in the middle, we we were always able to find it, and especially on that record. Yeah. I mean, I I, I think just as as an audiophile, and I I, uh, <clears throat> I got into producing records uh, over the course of my life, too. And on, from that side of things, not so much as a drummer, for, but from that side of things, I am mm-hmm. really interested in getting the right sound. And to me, that to me, that seemed Amorica seemed like the perfect mixture sure. of having someone like Jack who was going to get the sound that he felt was really appropriate for the album. You guys playing incredible music 
the vibe of the album, everything just sort of came together in this perfect storm of, of, of just, just a truly great album. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and it's it, like I said, it remains one of my all time favorites. And uh, speaking of Tom sounds like for me, I was like, oh, my God, the Tom sounds on this album are absolutely mm-hmm. ridiculously awesome. You know, so I'm, yeah. for me, I'm glad Jack was like, all right, we're going to use yeah. this mic and, you know, uh, you know, tunes like the uh, wiser time and the drum sounds on descending or, you know, mm-hmm. they're just, they're just incredible. And, um, so, so you guys did a Morica and how were you guys doing career wise at that point? Were you guys feeling like you were like on top of the world or were you, um, I'm just wondering, you know, three albums in. Yeah, uh, no, it felt, it felt like that. I mean, I know that when the album was about to be released, we certainly felt, I mean, it's funny. You can look back now and very clearly realize like that wasn't going to happen. This wasn't going to happen. But at the time, I remember thinking that this, I thought Amorica would be the biggest record that we had had. You know, Shake Your Money Maker was huge. Yeah. Southern Harmony was was also successful, but sold about not even half as many as the first record. But I thought this one was, I just thought this record was going to take over the world. I really did. I just thought, man, this is such a leap forward. Um, And that didn't happen. And, And like I said, with hindsight, it's just as, clear as a billboard on the side of the road all the reasons why not but it doesn't say anything 26 years later about the quality of the work yeah that it that, it, that it didn't that it that it you know the first album sold a little less than half of the second of the first the second album sold a little less than half of the first and then the third album sold a fifth of the second you know it was a huge drop-off commercially um in terms of sales and the impact of that you really don't see for a while, you know, so, you know, it, it, it hit the charts for one week and was off in the top 20, but it was like, well, what, I mean, the truth is we were, weren't sweating it at the time at all because like, just listen to it, you know, fuck it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I actually, I mean, we were sweating a lot of things, but, but in terms of there was plenty of plenty of things that we were concerned with. Uh, but, but the, but feeling it as a great band, like to your question, that was not one of them because, you know, I, we could, we could go, I could go see other bands and go, yeah, they're pretty good, but man, no one's doing what we're doing right now. Yeah. That's what yeah, it I felt mean, like to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were those of us, the five of us in the band and, uh, our front of house guy and our merch guy and whoever else was traveling with us, Amorica was on pretty solid rotation in our van all the time. And we I, we all thought like this album cements the Black Crows as one of the absolute greatest American rock and roll bands of all time, you know. And, and I believe that to be true, whether or not mm-hmm. the record sales, uh, you know, yeah, met sure. expectations. Yeah, the, the, damn it. No, I mean, and those there's well, a lot of my favorite records did not find great audiences. I mean, it's that the, the, those two things are very different lanes. Um, you know, when you're in the band, you concern yourself with them for v- different times and for different amounts of energy you spend thinking about either. But the one thing that never escaped any of us was that the record was really solid. Um, yeah. You know, and I, I had a real problem with the album cover for that. I was very just going to ask you it, about that. Yeah. I thought it, I thought it detracted greatly from anyone's first impression. I thought if you played that record for somebody without any visuals attached, they're going to look at anybody they know and go, man, the black crows have outdone themselves. And when yeah. you, when you stuck that record cover in their face, I think it's just like a house. It's like curb appeal really does matter. Mm-hmm. And and you know you can sell a shitty house if it looks great from the street a lot easier than you can sell a great house that looks bad from the street. Yeah. Um. You know whether it, it's just just that's just the nature of things. And I think that 
I think that that played a big part in the album not being taken as seriously as it should have been. Cause I think it's a fucking amazing record to this yeah. day. Yeah. If you put it on, I might, I mean, I don't remember the last time I listened to it. And I generally say when asked that Southern harmony, I think is the strongest album just in terms of the band doing what it did at its best at that moment in time. But, but Amorica uh, right behind it. You know, it yeah. doesn't mean I don't think Amorica is not a fantastic piece of work. Yeah. I, well, it, it's funny that you mentioned, I'm glad you mentioned the, the album cover because when I said it, the album has a certain fuck you attitude, the album cover certainly was part of that. And, and mm-hmm. who, I mean, whose idea was that? And was that, was there, was there like real conflict about that and going with it? Cause I remember oh, yeah. there was controversy like on MTV and stuff. They were yeah. saying, you know, the band's no, controversial and album and again, cover. I mean, yeah, the, the long version of this is all in the book, but yeah, that was Chris's whole idea and nobody else was on board with him and he somehow still got his way, which, just that alone speaks to the le- of how far off the course we'd all blown mm-hmm. that um, that that he was able to get something done that no one else believed in. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, these things happen. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm not going to say that a different album cover would have changed the trajectory of the band. Who knows? But I just know that at the time and, and it's not even the result, the idea, the, the biggest problem with the band that that story illustrates isn't that he got his way or or it isn't that the album cover featured pubic hair. It's that it's that he was willing to do something that no one else in his band supported. Mm -hmm. Um, That that's when you're in trouble, you know, when, 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 when the everybody else going, Hey, uh, isn't enough for him to say, yeah. uh, Okay, cool. I get it. That's, that's, and and that's a very common thing that happens to bands. Um, Yeah. You know, the idea that that the one person's thoughts are superseding the group is you're, you're, you've you've cast your own die at that point. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of how long until it all collapses. Yeah. So uh, next next question is, is the buyer side. Oh, no, sorry. Um, three snakes and one charm, I should say. Um, <laughs> first of all, I guess I should I should back up for a second and ask for, for you personally. I, I, I've seen a couple interviews with you and I. And even just chatting with you now, you seem like a, a pretty damn grounded human being. But I, I, I am wondering, and I'm always curious to know what it's like when fame comes. Um, you know, uh, what what was that experience for you like personally to become a, a part of a very famous rock band to become famous yourself? When uh, I, I, I did honestly, you know, man, I did I didn't have any. I wasn't famous. I mean, I, I said for years, I'm famous in a two block radius outside of any venue. I just played a gig. Um, you know, if I, if I leave a venue right after a concert and I walk into a bar and I'm wearing the same things I wore on stage, then people mm-hmm. are going to know who I am. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have to deal with that. The fame issue was honestly, that was Chris's thing to carry. And he, he got very, very famous very quickly. Um, but I, it was never a burden for me. I mean, because if, if someone knew me, then they clearly enjoyed the Black Crows music and yeah. they had they could come up and talk to me. And it was like, dude, I love your record. And it's like, yeah. that's always, hey, thanks. <laughs> right yeah. on. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Chris's fame in the 90s was anybody on the planet would look at him and go, I've seen that kid. Who's that? You know, mm-hmm. but you're, they're starting off where someone's like, who's he think he is or whatever. Yeah. You know, the, you know, be, for everybody that's like, oh, my God, that's the guy from the Black Crows. There's five people who are like what's that dude's deal? You know, I mean, he, he dealt with all kinds of shit. None of the rest of us ever had to think twice about. So, 
Um, and of all the varying degrees of how recognizable everybody was, I was at the bottom of the list because I was the drummer and yeah. I was not ever doing, I did the MTV rock and jock basketball game like once. I mean, like I, yes. I did very few things outside of just as a member of this group, you know what I mean? Yeah. There were very few moments where I was uh, the focal point of anything. So it's, it's, it was honestly, it's not even a, it was never a concern. I mean, I, I had a couple of weird run-ins with fans like anybody would, but nothing that's really that notable. Mm -hmm. So when you guys went on to make um, Three Snakes and One Charm, um, which is an album I love too, but mm -hmm. I, just as a fan, just as someone who was sort of tracking your career very closely, something felt a little different about that album. I, it's hard sure. to put my finger on it, but it felt a little... I hate to use the word tired or it felt like, well, it's not, it's not a band playing together. You know, it's those, those basic tracks are me on the kit and rich on rhythm guitar. And then rich went in and played the bass parts. And then all the other things were laid over the top of it. And I mean, I, the strength of the black crows to me was always the band playing together. You know, it's a great yeah. six headed monster. And we, for a variety of reasons, that's not how that record was recorded. And I think, um, and, and, and that, that's why you feel what you feel, whether, mm -hmm. you know, the subconscious picks up on that kind of stuff where the conscious mind doesn't, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who will tell you that's their favorite black Rose record and, and they're right. Yeah. Whatever I, your favorite is, you're right. That works for you. You know, I, I love that record. Uh, when we were made, I enjoyed the process, you know, and I liked the songs and it was pretty laid back for me. There were huge problems with other guys in the band and it, and I had just gotten better at handling it, keeping my nose out of other people's lanes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like to me, I look back, it wasn't a, a stressful time, but mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it, what, what do they always say? You know, everybody's uh, your, you know, everyone's mileage may vary on the experience of, of yeah. that album. You know, it's certainly a, a, it's a, it's a line in the sand record. Like, are you going to run with us for real as a fan? Yeah. And a lot of people did. A lot of people did. And it's, it's just one of those things. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely did. There are some of my favorite songs are on that album. And mm -hmm. I, the harmonies are beautiful on that album. Mm -hmm. You know, I love your playing on that album. There's a, so many things to love about it. But I, yeah, it was just one of those albums where I thought, you know, I don't know if they're transitioning, you know, um, but, but it's interesting to hear your, obviously very interesting to hear your take on it. Did you guys feel when you when you did um, Three Snakes and One Charm, because I remember it got a decent amount of uh, radio play. Blackberry was on the radio. There were a couple other songs that were getting play. When you guys went, and I'm assuming you did a pretty lengthy tour after that, the next album was By Your Side. And that album, to me, felt like a completely different band in so many ways. You, you mentioned, it was, yeah. I mean, the energy was like, you know, to go from that sort of, uh, right. Well, confident. by your sides, the by your sides, the one record we made where we were we weren't handcuffed with a gun to our head from the record company, but we were definitely in a position where we had to play ball with a record label. And we'd never been there before. Mm. Um, it's a it's a again, that's a very long story. Simply put, the band had run aground by the end of the Three Snakes tour in 1997. You know, we lost a third of the band in one week. Johnny quit. And, and we let Mark go. So suddenly it's just, the, there's four of us now and we're on a new label that is, you know, we went from being the, the big fish on a, in a tiny pond, like the biggest artist on a small label to being with Columbia records, which has, 
you know, at that time, Mariah Carey and Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. They don't care about the Black Crows. You know, they're a giant Madison Avenue record company, part of Sony. Yeah. And so we lost an awful lot of and 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 as much as uh looking back again with with great clarity it's not like the black crows of southern harmony or even amorica the black crows at the end of three snakes were limping mm-hmm. you know we walked into columbia without there was no reason for them to take us seriously and, and again not as a band i'm just thinking how record companies think mm-hmm. because columbia looked at one thing our sales and every record we put out sold less than the one before that's all they care about so mm-hmm. You can say Three Snakes is a grand artistic achievement. Nobody at Columbia Records gave a flying fart. They're just like, <laughs> every time you guys make a record, you sell less copies. So you got to turn this shit around. We're not going to waste our time with you. And of course, our first response was, why don't you just let us out of the deal? And their answer was, no, we'll yeah. never do that. You're going to give us, we want a rock and roll record again. It was real simple. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we, were, we weren't totally opposed to that concept because we knew we had to sort of start over from scratch. We had a new band. We had a new bass player. We had, um, there was a lot of personal changes within everyone's lives going on at that time. And a lot of it was an attempt to get rid of a lot of, uh, you know, negativity or negative things. We were trying to clean up a little bit, get our shit together and get back on the rock and roll side of things. Uh, basically, you know, the, the, the preceding years had just been a real grind and everybody was, you know, too drunk or too high or both at all times to, to adequately, you know, we, we had lost our way, not just commercially at all, but I mean, within the band, the way the band was functioning to a point where two guys were no longer there. I mean, that's a pretty calamitous moment. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we had to, go in and try a different approach. And that's what by your side largely was. And, and I think by your side is a perfectly fine straight ahead rock and roll record. It was a huge, yeah. it gave our fans giant case of whiplash, uh, understandably. So when in January, 99, you know, like 16 months after we're playing on the further festival with three snakes album, um, you know, then all of a sudden by your side comes out. A lot of people were like, the hell's going on. And, and it was definitely a case of us, you know, we we had I, I, we had lost our way, and we were trying to find our way, and we didn't. You know, the the we weren't trying to necessarily just appease a record company. We were trying to figure out where we wanted to go and who we even wanted to be, and did we want to still be a band? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of those kind of things going on at all times, and you know, it was a it was a series of missteps with the best of intentions that led us there. And so, you know, it's just one of those things you look at and go, well, we did the best we could, but we were in a no-win situation with Columbia Records. Yeah. And we were just trying to figure out how to navigate that and we weren't very good at it. And then and then you guys followed that up with Lions. Yep. And was that Don Was who produced that album? Yeah, Don Don was produced Don Lions. Was, and that yeah. was we had gotten away from Columbia, so we had a new deal. So we were given carte blanche. You know, we were able to do whatever the hell we wanted at that point. And and I think Lions is a great example of, you know, by your side was a really restrictive place and, and Lions was, we didn't have enough restrictions. You know, there was always a, there's a, there's a perfect balance where you play a little, you know, you don't want to be in a box, but, but when you don't have a wall anywhere, then you, I, I, th- I think that bands, I think songs and bands need a sense of structure. You have to have something to push against. 
yeah. to get to get somewhere new. And when you take all the walls down and you have nothing to push against, you can just do whatever the hell you want and say it's done. I don't think that's a great, you know, the 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 great art comes from rules. You know, you've got to have yeah. rules, even if they're just there to break them. You've got to have a structure somewhere, esoterically speaking. And I don't think we had any online. And I think it's, I, I think that inhibited us as well. Um, you know, but again, at the time, it's, it made perfect sense. You know, we're doing the best we can under the circumstances. We weren't a full band. We were the same four guys. Uh, we didn't have a steady bass player. We didn't have a steady second guitarist. We were, had a bunch of people coming by the studio, playing tracks and hanging out. We were just doing, you know, what we, we, we were doing the best we could under the circumstances. And I'd, it's easy to look back and say what that band really needed from the summer of 97 until the, the summer of 97, the band, we should have just stopped and said, hang on, we just lost two guys. We really, if we really want to get our shit together, we got to get them back. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that right there is what a band that understands its own greatness would have done, but we weren't that band. And so everything that happens after that, it's like a mathematic formula. If one of the early numbers is plugged in incorrectly, you can do the math, right. But the answer is always wrong. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like in a mm-hmm. trigonometry, you've got all these numbers. And, and if that very first two should have been a three, no matter how brilliant your math is from that moment on, the answer is going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And the answer for the Black Crows came in the summer 97, and we didn't see it, which was do whatever it takes to keep these six people in this band together. That's my view of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, I, when I saw you guys, I saw you a few times, but I had the opportunity to go backstage at a show, you, a band called God Street Wine opened for you guys. And I was friends mm-hmm. with those guys, been known them for many years. And I watched the whole set from behind the monitor guy. And right after the show, what Rich, show is that? Uh, it was at the Palace Theater in Albany. Okay. And, uh, you know, at, right after the show, Rich just sort of zipped off the stage and, and kind of out the stage door. And I, I met you very briefly. I said, hello. I spoke uh, at some length with Ed Harsh. Uh, he was so gracious and so kind. And he talked mm-hmm. about I asked him why he doesn't play a, uh, didn't play an acoustic piano live. And he said, well, because I have perfect pitch and it drives me crazy. And we had a good conversation. <laughs> right. And then I went upstairs and Chris was up there holding court and passing joints around and playing James Brown and see, screaming James Brown at the top of his lungs. And that sort of gave me a snapshot of, of the band at that moment in time. Uh, I know you've answered this question a million times, so and I, I don't want to get too deep into it, but how the hell did you do it? I mean, how did you persevere through all of that? I mean, I know eventually you left the band and you came back for time and then you left again. Well, it's, uh, it's, but, well, it's a great band. I mean, it's, yeah. it's you know, I said before, you're only on stage two hours a night, but if those two hours are great, that'll sustain you for 22 hours of nonsense. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, we, we all... I was 21 and Chris was 20 and Rich was 18 when we started playing together. Yeah. And we all said, let's do this. They had already made that commitment to each other. I jumped in as the third guy on the boat, on the boat. And within three years, we have a record in every record store in America. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, it's kind of hard to just say it's, it's hard to think about leaving that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, it's, it's um it's it's hard to think about uh no matter what you know and 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 again also like i I mentioned earlier you know this band didn't come together through the want ads uh you know chris was my roommate he was my friend and he was like why don't you just play with us instead you know we were it started on a very personal level and it was always that way and we were all 
trying to be in, you know, it, it was, it was a gang and it was a team and it was a band. It was trying to be all those things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when everybody's getting along, I mean, I never had any, everybody was very for, for Rich and Chris and I, you know, very different personalities, but very strong personalities. You know what I mean? Yeah. Ed, Ed was a guy who was genius at filling in space, you know, knowing where to be and where not to be. Mm-hmm. What, you know, when a really, really, you know, when to be funny and when to just laugh at how stupid we were, you know, whatever it called for. And he was a, had a huge heart and he was a gracious guy. And, you know, and the same thing when Johnny joined the band, Johnny's huge personality, but it clicked because it wasn't like me. It wasn't like rich. It wasn't like Chris. Everybody had, everybody had their own little corner of the room, you know, and some, yeah. some, somebody people took more space than others, but you know, that, that, that that chemistry really did work for a good solid, you know, seven years, six years before it started to, you saw us in the fall of 96 with God street wine and that tour, um, you know, the, the cracks were very, very apparent by that time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, going into the spring of 97, it was, it was, it was totally coming apart at the seams, but, um, but the, all the positive things, the great things that had propelled that band were still there. They were just muted. But, you know, you could still see us on a night in 96 and think that's the best rock and roll band in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And you're doing, you're doing a syndicated radio show now. Uh, yeah, Steve Westwood Gorman Rock. Rocks is uh, Westwood One Cumulus. It's on Monday through Friday, uh, East Coast 7 to midnight, five nights a week. Awesome. And the book, Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the black crows. Anyone who wants to know more about this story can, can go get the book and, and read it. And of course, go out and get your copy of Amorica and, uh, and listen to it all the time. Um, Steve, thank you Works so much. for me. Uh, yeah. I'm so grateful to have you on the show. Oh, and also buy the, the trigger hippie record. Um, and full uh, circle. And then full, some is full the trigger hippie some. record that you should pick up. That would be lovely. Absolutely. All right. Thank you again so much. I really appreciate your time. This has been great. Yeah, man. Thank you. All right. All the Take best. care. Yeah, See you ya. too. Kai, kai, this episode was produced and edited by yours truly. Big, big thank you to Steve Gorman. A little bit famous theme music by Jay Duris. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll see you next week. <laughs>